Hello and welcome to Diffusion. I'm Ed Pollitt. Put your feet up and crack a cold one as we deliver the science goods. In this edition, we'll be investigating such big questions as Can we kick the oil habit? What's the most energetic event in the universe? And how much cheese is too much? But first up, here's the news with Erin Passmore. First up, some big space news. For the first time, the rate of spin of a supermassive black hole has been measured. We really know very little about the formation of supermassive black holes, but the measurement of its spin can tell us an awful lot about it. In fact, the only other piece of information needed to completely define one, mathematically speaking that is, is its mass, and this is something that astrophysicists have been able to do for quite some time already. Supermassive black holes are so named because their mass is hundreds of thousands to billion times that of the Sun. They're usually found at the centre of galaxies and are thought primarily to form in two different ways, either from the accretion of surrounding matter into the black hole, which would give it a fairly hefty spin, or from the collision of two or more black holes, which suggests a not-so-fast spin rate. University of Maryland astronomy graduate student Laura Brenneman and her thesis advisor, Associate Professor Chris Reynolds, used the European Space Agency's XXM-Newton X-ray telescope to measure the spin of several supermassive black holes. The one for which they obtained the best data is spinning extremely fast indeed, at least 98.7% of the maximum possible spin rate allowed by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Can't get much faster than that. In other space news, with particular thanks to Universe Today, a new photograph taken by NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory reveals one of the most energetic events ever seen in the universe. According to astronomers, two huge galaxy clusters are currently undergoing a collision at a speed of 6.5 million kilometres an hour, releasing a tremendous amount of energy as their clouds of hot gas slam together. Or maybe it's a supermassive black hole consuming an incomprehensible amount of material. Through the telescope, the gas, heated to 170 million degrees Celsius, glows brightly in the X-ray spectrum as a bright arc extending over 2 million light years. If this was two galaxy clusters coming together, the arc would be a shock front between them where the clouds of gas are colliding. Another theory, however, is that the disturbance is an outburst coming from a supermassive black hole that recently received a large infall of matter. The black hole can only consume so much before it starts to choke. The excess material is expelled outwards in a pair of high-speed jets that also glow brightly in the X-ray spectrum. If the black hole theory holds true, it would have to be consuming a huge amount of mass, about 30 billion times the mass of the Sun, over a period of 200 million years. These values have never been seen before and truthfully are hard to believe, says Ralph Kraft of the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. ABC reports a stove is being designed using acoustic technology to cook, cool and generate its own electricity. The stove is intended for use in developing communities in Africa and Asia, 
Its developers say the stove could help improve the health and quality of life for the 2 billion or so people in the world who cook over open fires. Traditional open fire stoves are notoriously inefficient, with 93% of the energy generated being lost. According to Project Director Paul Riley from the UK's University of Nottingham, the efficiency of this new stove comes from a technology known as thermoacoustics, which produces sound waves from heated gas and then converts them to electricity, like a reverse speaker. Wood is placed inside the stove and burnt. The fire heats compressed air that has been pumped into specially shaped pipes located inside the stove's chimney and behind the stove. The heated air begins to vibrate and produces sound waves. As the coil vibrates about 50 times per second, it generates an electrical current which is captured by wires and converted to the proper voltage. The stove has electrical sockets where homeowners can plug in, for example, a mobile phone for charging. They can also sell the electricity. For refrigeration, the heated compressed air is sent through a different part of the pipe where sound waves cause the air to expand. And as it expands, it cools to a temperature that can produce ice. It takes about two hours of stove use to produce enough ice to keep the fridge cold for 24 hours. But homeowners have the option of producing more ice to sell for income. The stoves are expected to sell for 30 to 40 US dollars. And finally, low-fat milk straight from the cow's udder. New Zealand researchers are working to develop a dairy herd that naturally produces low-fat milk by 2011, according to a report in magazine Chemistry and Industry. It all started with Marge, a cow that researchers from biotech company Via Lactica found naturally produces low-fat milk. Since Marge's discovery in 2001, she's gone on to produce offspring that also make the low-fat milk. Via Lactica chief scientist Dr Russell Snell says Marge was discovered during a routine screening of dairy cows. It appears she has a version of a gene that produces low-fat milk, the same gene variant that has also been passed on to her calves. Marge and her daughters are kept in a secret location where they produce milk with a fat content of about 1%. Because of the lower levels of saturated fat, butter from these cows is spreadable straight from the fridge, like margarine. The scientists also say the milk is high in omega-3 oils, said to be good for the heart and essential for the growth of young children. Now I'm just waiting for chocolate and vanilla cows. Thanks to AFP for that story. With the price of oil continuing to rise, there's a growing demand for alternative fuels and energy sources. In recent years, fuels such as ethanol and hydrogen have been touted as the next big thing. But how realistic are they, and will they come in time to rescue us before oil becomes too expensive for the average consumer? Diffusion's Darren Osborne recently spoke with Dr David Lamb from the Energy Transformed flagship, based at CSIRO's Newcastle Laboratory, and started by asking him if we can wean ourselves from oil. There is no alternative to oil. There's nothing that can replace oil. Anything that's good enough to replace oil a little bit is only a little bit, like a few percent. Some cars you can run on 85% ethanol if you can find a supply of it, but there couldn't be enough ethanol to run cars on 
E85 all over Australia, right? For all cars. There might be enough to run all petrol-driven cars on E10. But that doesn't help any diesels, does it? And about half the fuel we use, well, 40% of the fuel we use is diesel. You can make biodiesel from stuff like canola. But there's only enough land and water available to be able to make a few percent of the amount of oil we use. So we are stuck with oil until you can find something different like hydrogen or electricity or what have you. That, that was going to lead me into my next question. I mean, hydrogen is seen as the future, as a future fuel. Yes. At what stage are we now in that? And when do you think that will become more of a mainstream fuel? If you went to the motor show the other day, you would have seen a hydrogen car on display there. Um, uh, who was it? Toyota had one, I think. There are hydrogen cars being made now. There are hydrogen cars being used in Victoria. Governor Schwarzenegger is a wild fan of hydrogen. He's having a, a hydrogen filling station made. But before you can buy one or even afford one, the International Energy Agency, the real experts in this, say 30 years, three or more decades. I quote them, three or more decades. 30 years, we're going to be stuck relying on oil for the majority of our fuel. That is serious. If there isn't enough fuel to go around, that implies that we're going to have to use less of it or we're going to have to use what we've got more auspiciously to take us where we've got to go. What can the average consumer do then to better make use of, of the fuels that we have? Well, the obvious thing to start with is to use the vehicle less, to drive it more fuel efficiently. After all, the majority of fuel is used in waggling the throttle up and down. And when you look at the road behaviour, you see people, you know, who obviously they must be beating time to the music the way they fiddle with the throttle. There are ways to drive much more cleverly than the way most of us do today. So we can improve that. But using the car less is the obvious way to go. Do you think we'll see a time when there'll be cars on the road that are purely electric? Absolutely. There are cars on the road in California, just a few. They're hand-built, you know, prototype jobs, but are electric cars. The technologies now exist to do that. But you might say to me, but we haven't. if you have enough batteries to be able to travel five or 600 kilometers, the batteries weigh like half a ton. But I would then ask you, why do you need to carry around five or 600 kil kilograms worth of fuel? Because you like to go to the petrol station once a week or once every 10 days. But if you could plug in your car every night, why the hell would you need to wait 10 days before recharging your car? You would charge it whenever you could. You'd charge it when you were at home overnight, and you'd charge it wherever you parked the car during the day, wouldn't you? But the question, I suppose the question a lot of people say is, I mean, if the technology's there, why are we not using it here? In London, there is a all-electric car and it's selling like hot cakes. It's a little car made in India. It's called the Reva, R-E-V-A. The reason it's selling in London is because London has a congestion charge. To drive into the city of London, you have to pay a congestion fee of £8. That's $20. If you drive an all-electric car, it's regarded as a zero-emission car, so you don't pay the $20. What's more? Some of them, in some places, they're offering free parking for a zero-emission car. So, no wonder they're selling Reavers in... But somebody wants to sell them in Australia, and he can't. Because the government says, or the car industry, I'm not sure who it is, says it doesn't comply with Australian safety rules. 
In China, there's a car company setting up to make all-electric cars within a couple of years. Obviously, they, they want to sell them on the US market. And let's say they brought some to Australia. And let's say that the public liked them. And let's say they started to sell in big quantity. And let's say that knocked a big hole in the petrol revenue, the excise that the government gets on petrol. Your guess is as good as mine how we would cope with that. And if you could look into a crystal ball, say, 20, 50 years from now, what do you think uh, the, the roadscape would look like if you took a typical sample of cars off the street? 50 years is too far out for me. I can't possibly guess that. I can say in 10 years' time, there will be a few electrics, quite a few electrics on the, car, on the, on the uh, roads. Now, remember, there are 13 million cars on the roads in Australia, and we sell about a million a year so the implication there is it'll take you 13 years to change over what we call the fleet surely more and more small cars the cars are going to get smaller they're going to become increasingly electrified you know every year every model you buy is more electrified than the last one it's going to have more gadgets in it more navigation more automatic control more safety devices all that sort of stuff but probably in 10 years time many new cars will be electric cars Plug-in electric cars are good for the city. And this is what a lot of people don't stop to think about. Hybrids are great in the city. They're no good in the country. Diesels are much better in the country. Why? Because a hybrid gets its fuel efficiency by capturing the energy when you're slowing down or stopping. So in a city where you've got a lot of stop-start, you get saving. On the highway, where you've got no stopping and starting, you're not going to save anything. In fact, it's going to cost you more to drive in the country in a hybrid. So hybrids are good for the city. Electric cars are good for the city. It'll be many, many years before anybody invents an electric car that can store enough energy to drive from Melbourne to Brisbane. It won't happen. And you don't want to stop on the way to recharge because to be able to recharge quickly is going to cost you a lot more money or you're going to have to change the battery pack or something like that. So I can't see that happening. So uh, to get back to your earlier question, what are we going to do when oil gets scarce? We're going to save it for the most important uses. That's quite clear. Which means if you want to save your oil for your most important uses, you've got to find something, some way of replacing oil where it can be replaced, which is in the city. Dr David Lamb of CSIRO's Energy Transformed Flagship talking with Darren Osborne. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, here's Tilly Boleyn and Vanessa Gardos with this week's Mad Science. Yes, it's that time again for the science goodness that is mad science. Well, there are some interesting stories that happened this week in the world of science. We'll start with one to combat obesity at good, work. Good, good. Mm, something very important, you know, a sedentary lifestyle when you're sitting at work, working on your computer all day, you can get a little, you know, a little bit bad for the, the weight. Sure. What do, you, what do we need to do? Lock them in cages and not give them food? Oh, you could try that. Mm. But um, scientists at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota have come up with another idea. 
instead of having you sitting down while you're working, they want you running on treadmills or oh, perhaps oh, walking. That that is pretty much like locking mice in cages. Yeah, yeah, hamsters <laughs> on your little little running wheel in the cage. I wasn't there. too far off. No, Good. Okay, so so what, they have to walk on the treadmill to power their computer or what? Uh, uh, that would be a great <laughs> idea. We should let them know. I don't think they got quite that far, <laughs> but they've built this frame that incorporates the treadmill and a little shelf for your computer and a shelf for your mouse and your keyboard. So you're supposed to do this the whole time while you're working? Well, they're suggesting two to three hours a day. Oh, my God. (laughs) That would be great. I'd be all for it. But, I mean, what about when you're doing, you know, if you're doing something irritating in Excel and you're trying to figure out some complex equation and you, you know, you know, when you catch your foot on the edge of the treadmill or something and just fall, <laughs> fall over and lose all your work. It would be terrible. And I like to think the idea that you're having your, your, your phone call or your teleconference and you're panting yeah. away on the other end of the line. I do that at work all the... Oh, hang on. Uh, anyway, what else? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how much are these things going to cost and are they, have they started rolling them out? I think they have. They've, they've set a price, £1,000 mm-hmm. per, per item per apparatus. Um, they're saying that um, the stu- they did a study using these Of course these they machines. did. This is science. Of course. <laughs> it was a very, very good study. Um, and the volunteers in the study burnt about 191 kilometres per hour on the treadmill. And 191 kilometres? I mean, 100, 191 <laughs> calories. Nice. That's what good. I mean. 191 calories per hour. On the treadmill as they were working. That's like half a Big Mac, though, isn't it? Well, they compared it. They compared it to people that sat at their desks. Oh right, yeah. So that was compared to seventy-two calories per hour. Mm -hmm. So you know, significant difference. Mm, Not as much as you would think from exercising for an entire hour. Maybe these people weren't walking slow. You can control (laughs) the speed on the treadmill. Mm. So I guess it depends how fast you're walking. But they're projecting that if you used it two to three, two to three hours a day every day that you're at work and you kept your calorie intake the same as usual, you could lose between 20 and 30 kilos a year. Wow. So that's pretty impressive. Just, you know, I mean, this isn't probably something that we could bring in for hairdressers, though. I just (laughs) try to think of works of life, walks of life even, that, um, (laughs) that it wouldn't quite fit. Well, as long as the person having their hair cut and the hairdresser were walking at the same pace. True, true. That would work. You're, you're solution-focused, oh, Vanessa. I, <laughs> I should get on the team. <laughs> yeah, So, and I was also thinking of their campaign, campaign mm. for selling these treadmills. Mm. I don't know whether you saw the video clip of that band OK Go that had the choreographed treadmills. No. Oh, it was a great video clip. It probably came out about six months ago where they had the four band members and they had about eight treadmills all stacked up together. And they did this choreographed dance move on oh the trip. It was God. brilliant. Don't tell me you're interested in dance music as well as a scientist. It, it was the treadmills. It was the treadmills that hooked me in. What else? What well, else has happened? We have another story talking about names, naming babies. Mm-hmm. And they've come out... Boring. S- tell me this is going to get... <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty okay. good. Have you ever wondered how influential your name is as to oh. the way your career develops? Uh no. No, not a lot. Well, apparently, depending on how girly parents name their daughters, whether the name's really girly or less girly, mm-hmm. it'll influence whether they take up a career in, in science or math. No. Mm, apparently. Thank goodness I changed my name from Tinkerbell then. I know. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, what? I mean, what sort of names are they saying are keeping girls out of science? Well, they're talking about the girliest names being names like Isabella. Mm, that's pretty girly. And Anna. 
Oh, that's not that girly, well, is it? I'll give you another example. Please. Um, Elizabeth, Emma, Jessica. Ben. I mean, they're all girls' names, but they're not, you know, kinkykins well, or something. The way that they worked it out, scientifically, of, of course. course. Ratings for the femininity of the names were based on a um, letter and sound combinations, and they had <laughs> 1,700 letter and sound combinations that they obviously assigned a mathematical value to. And that gave them. Christ, that. I hope someone got a PhD out of this. That, yeah, anyway. or a couple, or <laughs> yeah. a couple. And looking at the other end of the scale, the least girly names, the mm. least feminine names, things like Alex. Alex, for I mean, Alex could be go either yeah, way. Alex yeah, Alex and Ashley both could go yeah, either way. Yeah, that's true. We've got Abigail. Abigail's girly. Well, that's what I would have thought. What is wrong with these scientists? Grace, Grace is girly. Lauren, Emily. Oh, God. Well, they're all just girls' names to me. I know. This is crazy. So apparently... This is, this is mad science. This is science gone. Mad. <laughs> Local. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> did crazy. They, so what other, did they get any other results out of it other than saying these girls were less likely to go into the sciences? Less and likely maths? to go into the science and maths, but they did studies with um, pairs of sisters as well, looked at naming, you know, sisters, sisters that one of them was named Alex, much more likely to go into science or maths compared with the other one. Where was this done? This was done, University of Florida. <laughs> Spend a bit too much on the time on the beach, maybe. You know, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of hours. sunstroke. Then you go. Then again, is someone called Doreen always going to work in a fish shop or something? You know, <laughs> oh, like it, it makes you wonder. <laughs> wonder whether people you, you know really prejudge re- yeah. people on. You've really on got to research those baby names before you start assigning them. Mm-hmm. Not just you know what the movie stars are being called. No. Apparently, there's been this massive spike in the name Scarlett. I can't think of because of Scarlett Johansson. No. Yeah, no. and also Kira because of that. Kira Knightley. <laughs> Slapper Kira Knightley. No thanks. Well, they're also suggesting names not to name your children or, or ways not to come up with names for your children, which are obviously things like trashy celebrities. Mm. Apparently they had a spike in the names Jordan in the UK oh after that my horrible. <laughs> and they also said not to use the Victoria and David Beckham method. <gasps> of where you conceived mm. your child. Mm. So that's something yeah, to think Yeah, a about. friend of mine named their kid Car Parkers. <laughs> <laughs> shocking, shocking. <laughs> All right, back to science. Back science. to science. We've got a story about Albert the love struck Albatross. Oh, he's very lovesick. He spent the last forty years unsuccessfully looking for romance. Uh, look, that that reminds me of a couple of my friends. But uh, what do you mean? Where, he's been looking in the wrong places. For well, st- he's probably been going to clubs rather than you know yeah. just your friendly neighbourhood, the pub. Yeah, he's he's more of a beer guy rather than you know. A, <laughs> A dance party guy, obviously. But the reason why he's had so little luck is because he's about 13,000 kilometres away from the traditional albatross breeding grounds. Oh, well, that might do it. Yeah, but I don't think he realises that. He was blown off course in the South Atlantic in 1967, ended up on a – well, apparently he's lived for the last three years on a little tiny Atlantic rock between the Outer Hebrides and Scotland – Scotland, As, yeah, all the he way up there. Wouldn't even be able to understand another albatross if it come across him. No, that's for it's a whole different language. <laughs> Cultural differences, Cultural <laughs> clash. Cultural so, what are we going to do? A big shout out to any uh, albatross that are listening yeah, in Scotland. I reckon Albert, are single. Hmm, Albert's a black black browed albatross. 
He's currently 47 years old. He's, he's probably going to have a lifespan of 70 years. So you've still got a couple of good he's years. You've still got a couple of good years. Left in he's, he's, he's on the endangered species list, but okay. don't hold that against him. Likes short walks on the beach. Yeah, <laughs> apparently he's been he's he's been looking for love and a number of bird watchers have spotted him trying to mate with another species of bird. It's oh, look, we've all been there. I yeah. mean, you have a few drinks. Yeah. It gets a little bit hazy as to what you're One looking species, at. One species, another species. Species. Oh, it's a poor Albert. Hopefully. That's that's terrible. Maybe we can genetically engineer a uh, a Scottish albatross for him. That would be nice. Mm. I think so. We'll send it his way. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, Albert. It's coming. <laughs> that's great. Okay. I know. I know. And we might stick with the um the flapping things for for one more story. And I've got a story that's come out of the USA. Just for the listeners, Vanessa did actually make a flapping motion. That, you couldn't uh, hear my hands <laughs> moving past the microphone as they flap through the air. Mm. So we've got a story about little bats that have been running into wind turbines. What? I know. It's shocking. Oh, green it, green power goes red. <laughs> it's nasty. <laughs> it's murder murder mystery cut-ups. What are you, they've been slamming into them. Yeah, they've been running into these wind turbines and they're thinking that they get confused because of their echolocation. Mm-hmm. That's the way they find their way around and it's getting thrown out of whack because of the high-pitched whirring sounds that the wind turbines are making. Right, so, so they're not trying to mate with them or anything. No, no, they're no, just no, no. actually flying yeah, into them. Yeah, they're just flying through the So do the they air. get all cut up or do they just bump, bounce off? What? I, d- I didn't okay. go into that much detail. Right. They did found, find a, a lot of bat Bits. bodies oh, okay. on the okay. ground under the... So what are we going to do? Have we put cages around them? Or, I don't know. I guess that... Solutions. Well, they're trying to think about where to put the wind turbines that might you know, stay out of the the bats' trajectories a little mm. bit more. Um, they found that places, forested ridges right up the top there tend to have a lot more insects and stuff like that, so the bats are flying of through course, there. Of course, feeding so, frenzy. Yeah, so trying to keep it out of out of the normal places that the bats go. Right. But the good news mm. is that good. the birds are fine. Oh, no no birds, birds slamming into the turbines, just the bats. Oh, right. So mm. it probably is something to do with their special, special skills. Yeah. And listen to The Daily Show at 9.30 on Friday mornings for more of our very own superstar, Tilly Berlin. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this week's program were Darren Osborne, Erin Passmore, Tilly Berlin, Vanessa Gardoz and Marge. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ed Pollitt and join us next time on the airwaves or in your electronics of choice for more science wonderment on Diffusion Science Radio. Thank you